couldn't understand if I was willing to invest in myself, why they didn't see that as a benefit to the firm. That kind of mentality helped shift and uh, gave me empathy to form a firm that would do different and create an environment where people could thrive and flourish for the betterment of the whole and for the betterment of our work. Welcome to Architecting. I'm your host, Angela Mazzi. You made it. This is the landing pad for raw honesty about connecting your career with your purpose. I'm going to give you the tools you need to be an unapologetic advocate for yourself and others, because if you're here, you believe that the space we surround ourselves in matters, and you're committed to project by project building a better world for all of us. If you're with me, let's get architecting. Welcome to Architecting. I'm your host, Angela Mazzi, and today I am so excited to bring you our special guest, Dina Prostos. Dina is the founder of Indigo River, a really exciting consortium of transdisciplinary architects, engineers, planners, that's really focused on how to design for climate change. What I also love about Dana's story is that by following her passion, she tuned in that there was a better way to build a practice that would help her and others to do better work. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Angela. My pleasure to be here. I want to know how you got to the point of starting this kind of niche firm and what in your career led you to see that this was a gap and that you were the one to fill it? I started my education in architecture and I continued to get a degree in civil engineering. And so right off the bat, I think as far as architects and career path are concerned, it's a little bit atypical because even after my education, my first full-time job was in the construction field. And so I really explored other parallel industries and paths within the profession before coming full circle back to architecture and before uh, determining the specialty that is now my focus, which is the waterfront and, and climate adaptation work. That was in large part out of curiosity of my own to better understand the, the different disciplines. Um, I spent six years in the construction field and by coincidence, the first project that I worked on was the Staten Island Ferry Terminal. Uh, so certainly a lot of exposure to waterfront work and climate adaptation work without, you know, setting out to do that. But certainly I have profound appreciation for nature and working on the waterfront is very much in tune with nature. And so marrying some of my innate passions with curiosities and just exposure and experiences throughout my career, kind of leaning back into those areas and taking cues from what those passions were, continued after working in construction and worked for a marine engineering firm and found myself working in terms of multidisciplinary kind of counterparts, a lot of different engineers, a lot of different specialties, opposite some architects and landscape architects, but wondering to myself where the architects were and, and why there weren't more architects in this space, as there is a tremendous need for kind of what we bring to the table in terms of focusing on the bigger picture and, and how we can respond to a changing climate through our work and through the built environment beyond just buildings. That is so important that we have a more expanded view of what we can bring to design of space, to the user experience, to integration of other disciplines. That's kind of a unique part of our training. It really is. And, and I think something that the profession maybe struggles with from time to time is 
asserting our agency in different ways and also making the case for, you know, the value proposition of what value we bring that's different than engineers or planners or other kind of parallel disciplines and why it's so important for architects to be involved from, you know, early phases and early stages from planning all the way through construction. In my career through the exposures that I've had um, kind of hit home and, and also coming back full circle to architecture, realizing that there was this gap and making the case for the value proposition that is there with what the architect brings to the table. What is the business model for this? You saw a gap. You had the experience of working in the engineering world, in the water world to kind of start to connect some of these dots. But why start a firm? I worked for medium to large size firms early in my career and on a fair amount of government work, federal work, state work, city work. The state of New York in particular is very ambitious about setting goals for working with minority and women-owned businesses, veteran-owned businesses. And I remember being in a position on the prime team, whether as the contractor on a design build or, or as a prime engineering firm and managing the subconsultants within this specialty space and not finding the caliber of quality within this highly specialized field, frankly, oftentimes kind of filling the niche and filling the gap of what needed to be done to bring the project to completion. And so having a few light bulb moments throughout my career of, well, I'm a woman, I'm doing this anyway for the prime, why wouldn't I do it out on my own? And I have a business partner, Shay Thorvaldson, who's a veteran, and same thing. I mean, he was also doing some of that, filling the gaps, and we saw the opportunity and decided to partner, and we've launched several firms now within the minority women veteran-owned spaces that do a lot of government work, fill that criteria, whether it's 15% or 19% or 30% women-owned. And that kind of hedged our bet and, and gave us some confidence going into business on our own that we knew there was a lot of government subsidy and, and work focused on promoting and set asides for women-owned businesses. And we had the confidence that we had the technical skills because we were already doing it. What is different, would you say, about how you set up Indigo River or any of your other firms than where you worked in the past? I think a lot of the architecture and engineering and construction industry is kind of rooted in some antiquated styles of leadership and understanding why they got to be the way that they are, but also understanding that there are more progressive outlooks and views and more adaptable climates that we're capable of creating. And so seeing that as an opportunity also, I just remember in my career working under different leadership, kind of hitting these glass ceilings that I couldn't rationalize why they were there. It was I was capable of contributing far beyond what my role or title said. And I, I couldn't understand, especially with this influx of technology and increase in productivity and being able to leverage these different technologies and tools, not understanding why I was hitting these ceilings. And so wanting to create an environment where that wasn't the case and where if someone came in out of school and had the exposure to the latest technology and was able to leverage it and be more productive, we could harness that as a firm and not give the answer of no, we haven't done it that way. So we're not going to do it that way. Or no, not everyone in the firm knows how to do that. We're not going to do that. Being a, a bit smaller, I mean, we're, we're close to 20 people, which isn't so small, but small enough that we can still pilot and try, you know, going in different directions, using different tools, investing in our personnel to try different things. We're very experimental and also very democratic in our leadership and, and embracing these different tools and, and emerging technologies. See on your website, you've got a really, really wide range of skill set 
everything from musicians and scientists, visionaries, artists, as well as the more conventional architects, engineers, planners. How do you create that atmosphere for collaboration and innovation? I think it's really embedded in embracing our employees and our team members as whole people. And part of that comes from the empathy of being, you know, multidisciplinary in my own background and my partner's background. I've worked in construction, I've worked in engineering, I've worked in, in design, and also being different things and bringing those different things to the table. And so whether a musician or a scientist or a cultural enthusiast, they're, they're different areas of our life that we can bring into our work and let show through in the built environment. That's one of the most beautiful things about architecture and creating built environments. And so we model that and we look for that. So when we bring people into the team, we have all different types of disciplines and all different types of backgrounds that really do strengthen our focus. And we are uniform in our focus and what we are looking at. And that really is waterfront projects, typologies that are where land meets nature, where man-made meets nature, where land meets water. Whether that's through the lens of, you know, a geotechnical engineer or a naval architect or a climate adaptation planner, we bring this kind of richness and diversity of thought, but with the same focus of, you know, leaving our environment better than we inherited it. And so that's something that is kind of core to our values and, and modeled in many of our different atypical career paths, but now having, you know, found a fusion altogether at Indigo River. So often these other disciplines are brought in as consultants and there can be a little bit of fear of losing control of the project or maybe not as good of collaboration happening. Because I know I have seen, depending on the project manager throughout my career, there can be a lot of collaboration early on and a lot of brainstorming with the whole team. Or there can be a little bit of, here's the concept, make it work. I think everyone could see the benefit when you collaborate early, but that's not always easy to do. How do you make that work? Is it something where you're just bringing everybody together into kind of a war room and coming up with ideas? Or do people bring in different channels that are their areas of expertise? One of the things that we've found in terms of kind of workflow, work product, stages of work, um, and something that we kind of require and mandate that everyone on our team do is perform and, and author permits. And so permits on the waterfront are much more stringent than kind of any other typology in that we have environmental bodies, we have federal bodies, we have the Army Corps of Engineers, Department of Environmental Conservation, we have the Department of State, we have who owns the land underwater, who owns the adjacent properties, a lot of things that are considered and a tremendous amount of science and, you know, species and habitat considerations. And so by understanding what the constraints are within permitting as a departure point, that's certainly a language that we all speak and can bring to the table the other area that we focus on tremendously in many of our backgrounds, not by coincidence, have embraced construction and constructability concerns and techniques. Particularly on the waterfront, it is nuanced in that if you're, you know, working in a dense urban environment, oftentimes your member size, your structural member sizes are limited by turning radiuses on a truck bed. And so that's kind of how you break down the, the design in terms of constructability. But working on the waterfront, you have a tremendous amount of latitude and creativity to flex in terms of what you can prefab and bring by barge and pick and place to the site. And so there's some other considerations that lend themselves to getting into the means and methods. Early on, one of my concerns in my career was really understanding what goes on in the construction field because I saw it as a constraint to design in terms of you can design anything, but how do you build it? And how do you break it down into the parts? Who is building it? What are their thought processes? And so 
that rolls through our, our entire company, both in terms of the regulation and, and what checks and balances you have to go through to get a project permitted, but also in terms of the construction and what those pieces are, how they break down. Again, working in the waterfront, it's a dynamic zone, you have shifting tides, you have in-water work windows, you have moratoriums. And so having that all embedded at the time of design, it's really crucial and important to that collaboration process. And so that it's not designing in a silo and, and getting through 60% design before you realize, oh, this is never going to be permitted, or how are you ever going to build this? And so we really have a lot of those conversations up front and embedded in our process by kind of sharing in that load. And it's not that we have one permit person that we send everything to or one constructability person that we send everything to. We very much have those conversations early on and, and routinely. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about your why. This is something I always like to ask guests, like, why did you want to pursue a career in architecture? Why are you so passionate about the work you're doing now? Connect those dots for us. If you would have asked me 15 years ago if I thought I was going to be a licensed architect and form a firm, I probably would have said no. It wasn't on my radar. I knew it was a possibility. I think there are a lot of benefits and, and always have. But my why then was just learning and absorbing, you know, exploring curiosities, absorbing information until I could really identify the need and the opportunity for the type of work that I've been fortunate enough to be exposed to and, and be able to kind of compound throughout my career. And now, not so much the focus of the work, but having experienced employment environments that were, frankly, less than stellar and where I didn't feel like I was my best self and where I felt stifled or stunted in my growth, the desire in part not only to focus on a specialty, but to form a firm was to create an environment where that would not be the case, where employees would feel valued as their whole selves. And if they wanted to invest themselves in something, we also wanted to invest in them. So I, re I remember feeling even through my licensure process that it was kind of not aligned with the firm. The firm wasn't supporting my licensure process at the time. And I couldn't understand if I was willing to invest in myself, why they didn't see that as a benefit to the firm. That kind of mentality helped shift and give me empathy to form a firm that would do different and create an environment where people could thrive and flourish for the betterment of the whole and for the betterment of our work. It is a real issue in the profession. And increasingly, we're starting to see that women and minorities often leave the profession because they don't feel supported and they're burdened by other issues in their personal lives, like maybe more responsibility for childcare or other socioeconomic conditions that they can't dedicate the same resources. So it's not that they don't care as much. It's just they don't always have the same resources. And if the firm is not making a point to support them and give them flexibility and give them financial support, it just becomes too hard. I'm glad to say that you are looking at strategies for smoothing that path and creating a more equitable firm structure. How do you notice that that has an impact on the people that work for you? What are you seeing happen in their careers because you're giving them this empowerment and agency? The root of that is kind of philosophical, whether Machiavellian and, you know, by power or by fear or by love and by compassion. And so we 
very much lean toward the latter and have found that that relationship that's created is stronger than any of the relationships that we had experienced in our careers as leadership of, of having that support and the way that manifests itself. Sometimes we have several primary caretakers that do have a flex kind of hybrid schedule in that, you know, most of us are working the same hours of the day, but occasionally something comes up during the day and child needs to go to a doctor's appointment and there's no judgment. There is full accountability and being able to get the work done that needs to get done and communicative about it. And so there is open trust that is built and loyalty that is built in supporting the private and personal life as well as the, the professional life. And so those two, you know, speak to each other and we don't want people hiding or scared about, you know, what their personal commitments are. We want to support them in those so that when they come to work, they're focused on work and when they're home, they're focused on home. And so that's, again, something that we did not experience and value through empathy because of the lack of, and in, in, in terms of what we were exposed to early in our careers. It's a real pivot from the competitive nature. A lot of us started with our education, right? It was very competitive in studio. We were taught that we had to work all these crazy hours because we could never get the right answer right off the bat. Of course, you had to iterate and iterate endlessly and that it would never be good enough. And then we take that with us into practice. And this has now gone on for so many generations that there is a little bit of feeling of that's just the way it is. So I always appreciate it when somebody questions the premise and starts to say, well, is it really? Is that really the only way that it could be? A lot can happen when you just take that competition element out of it. Yeah. And I, I am fortunate now looking back, I mean, I felt, you could say I felt lost at, at various points in my career as an architect um, and, and even up and through licensure. But I think again, in my experience of having worked for contractors and understanding what the day-to-day was there and what the expectations were. And then working for engineers, there is something to be learned from our parallel disciplines in terms of work-life balance. And as architects, yeah, we sometimes kind of glorify the grit and the 24-7 nature of our work and not knocking the creativity and the hours that kind of that shines through, but taking some structure from some of the parallel disciplines and applying it can be beneficial. And so that's certainly something, again, having a multidisciplinary team. I only have one other architect on staff. All of our studio peers from our, our academic careers have a very different kind of day to day life in terms of what that work life balance looks like or doesn't look like. And so that's also just kind of lessons learned looking around us at, at parallel industries that can be applied and, and certainly appreciated and leveraged for hopefully the better. But you get to see that you can still do as good, maybe even better work when you're not exhausted, when Absolutely. you're not constantly doubting yourself and you could get in the zone more quickly. I know you are a big lover of travel and a big lover of of nature. Talk a little bit about how you kind of integrated your whole life and made your work part of a lifestyle, not just a job. Very much so. And our, our career as architects, especially when we embark on licensure, I mean, I, I remember going through studying for the exams and, and taking the test thinking, all right, there, I'm done. I've, I'm licensed. And really, that's just the start of your career. That's really when you assert the agency to affect change and to, to truly protect the health, safety and welfare of the public in the built environment asserting that agency once you get there and reestablishing what your mission is as a licensed architect and not as, you know, you went through architecture school, you went through studio, you went through you know various mentorships and internships, but understanding that's really the launching point for your career and that there's so many different ways to assert our agency as architects and not being kind of guttered in what architects before you have done. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the role of architect as 
advocate because I think that happens a lot in the way that you work. A lot of your projects, like you said, are through government agencies and there is a public interaction part of that. Where are you seeing opportunities, not just for yourself, but for architects in general to be better advocates? One of the things I find myself getting lost in thought a lot around is how unique our role is in that we we serve a client who isn't always or necessarily the, the decision maker or in tune with the operations team of who's going to maintain whatever the asset is that we're designing. And we're also sometimes disconnected from that end user. And so we serve a lot of clients, so to say. It's not just the one who's picking up the bill or who holds the contract. It's the decision maker. It's the stakeholders. It's the community. And, and particularly in the case of infrastructure, like the type that I work on, sometimes it's a generation removed that sees the benefits of what we're designing. And so really thinking with the future-proofing mindset and resilient attitude of this needs to be built to last, and it needs to be built to serve a community that's removed from today's community. And so thinking through what that really means, I found to be an area that is special and unique to architects, that it's not just looking to a guidebook or a code book and and kind of checking the boxes and, and pushing something through, but under understanding who we are really serving, who we are protecting, what it means to protect the welfare of the public and what public that is today or tomorrow. So certainly something that, again, in terms of advocacy, learning to empathize with a, a community that may not exist yet and being a little bit more intuitive in our practice and not so black and white of what today's client says or what the science of today says and, and starting to understand what the projections mean for our work. And if you encounter resistance, whether it's we don't have the budget to deal with that or or maybe something becomes politicized. What are some strategies that you use to keep the integrity? I mean, we all realize that we never get the whole vision all the time, or even most of the time, but there is a certain integrity to an approach or a concept. How do you keep that intact? Early on, what one of the things that we'll do is establish a design criteria to do just that, to say, all right, whatever the, the program is, the scope of the project, what are we designing to? What is the criteria? that we're holding ourselves to? Is it designing for sea level rise in 10 years? Is it designing for four inches of sea level rise? Is it designing for category three hurricane, but establishing in terms of our climate and in terms of our environment, what that criteria is so that we can agree. And sometimes it happens where we establish a design criteria and then we go through the motions and it turns out that it's too expensive. The client doesn't have the money to build it or we have to phase it. But one of the tried and true methods is to really focus on fact and educating the client and not what I want as an architect imposing my views and what I think is right, but kind of bringing it back to what the facts are, what the science says, what the projections are, understanding that we're incurring greater and more severe and more frequent extremes than we ever have before. And so to invest in infrastructure that doesn't meet some of those challenges, it can be a waste. And so understanding and calibrating with the client of what the true goals of the project are, what the design life is intended to be, and coming back to those. And if it needs to be fixed, and, and prioritized and focused in a different area. That's something that we'll do, but it's not always kind of black and white of here's a site, here's a program, go to town. It's really focusing on what the criteria is, particularly on the waterfront when we're dealing with, you know, sea level rise and flooding and storm surge and some particular and unique dynamic conditions that we want to make sure we're doing right by the client, but we're also doing right by the end user of who's going to be inheriting and maintaining this infrastructure in the future. The downstream effect, if you will, of who is impacted when the climate event occurs. And there's a cost 
to handling that disaster and the rebuilding and all of that that needs to be brought forward to why the investment of what you're doing today makes sense. Absolutely. And so, yeah, looking whether it's a cost benefit analysis of different types of solutions, particularly in the case of flood mitigation techniques, sometimes we'll put together a decision matrix of, you know, A to Z, different options, different technical options, but then also weight the the regulatory implications, the operations and maintenance implications. And so it's not just a financial decision, but it's also a lot of other factors that go into making that decision and prioritizing, you know, if there's a, a budget that's already set, prioritizing how that is used or what that's put towards. And sometimes it does come to phasing of we're not going to do this whole, you know, area, we're going to do a part of it, we're going to do it right. And we're going to look for additional funds to do the next segment that will also do right. Your projects do a lot of heavy lifting, because they're dealing with a lot of environmental conditions and potential conditions. But you also work hard to enhance quality of life for the people on the waterfront. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how the waterfront becomes a place for people to gather and to enjoy life and to maybe enrich the life they're already living. That's critically important in in particularly in urban environments where you might not feel so in tune with nature if you're landlocked in this concrete jungle, but understanding that as soon as you approach the water, you start to open up this relationship with nature. And whether it's in a maritime industrial environment or whether it's a waterfront front park and a beach, there's still benefits from just being around the water and and being a little bit more immersed in that nature. And there are ways in which I I mentioned before, kind of the architect asserting their agency in this space that hasn't been a focus before. And part of the opportunity that I saw was even in in the case of, you know, ADA compliance and in terms of egress considerations, and there's code and there are guidelines that engineers follow, but the quality of life aspect wasn't always seen as an opportunity. Whereas when, when I look at, you know, a pure structure that maybe has a gangway down to a floating landing. And I understand what that range of motion is for the shifting tides. And I think about the person in the wheelchair that might be going down that gangway. My thought process in terms of design solutions is different than the engineers who are looking at their, you know, guidelines and more prescriptive solutions and problem solving, not necessarily designing, but problem solving. And so that's something where, again, I feel as, you know, asserting agency as an architect and understanding what that human experience component is and seeing that as an opportunity for design to be more inclusive in in how we open up the waterfront for everyone and what that experience is like um, is certainly an area where we found ourselves celebrating. And it can be an expression of culture and identity versus the no-fly zone that nobody wants to be around. Absolutely. What is one thing, if you could share with your younger self, that you would want her to know about what's important about being an architect and what opportunities she should be looking for? Not to say that I didn't find it important, but I don't think I understood the weight of the relationship that we form, even in our academic career, but even especially early in our career, kind of undermining ourselves and our authority and our experience and kind of lack of conviction early on that there's so much opportunity to reinvest in in relationships and carry them through with us throughout our career. I have relationships from early in my career, from my academic career that I'll, I'll lean on, but I don't think I quite understood the weight that 
they would bear in my in my life that they ha- they have to date. And so that's certainly an area where I feel probably regardless of any industry, just understanding the relationships that we form and that we invest in and continue to reinvest in in terms of yeah return on investment payback multifold. That's a great point. I think we can't underestimate the power of mentors of networks and of even I call them genius circles because mm-hmm. when we're around people that are doing what we're doing or even a little bit ahead of us, our crazy ideas don't feel so crazy. And they actually get excited about them and maybe give us more ideas on how to make them work. So I love that you brought that up because I think a lot of times architects can fall into the I'm too busy trap and have the tunnel vision that's just about what do I need to do to meet this deadline and not seeing that your career has a container beyond working on projects, that there's more to it that will enrich what you can bring to projects. Absolutely. And you mentioned before, I appreciate travel greatly. And part of the main reason is beginning to understand other cultures and their relationship with the built environment and how we take for granted sometimes what our relationship is with the built environment just by default of maybe it's all we know, but understanding other parts of the world that have, you know, a deeper history and what their relationship has been historically with the built environment, understanding that there are multiple ways in which the the same built environment can be experienced. And so to start to understand that it's not only, you know, the hardware, but it's also the software, which really is under the architect's purview of of how we experience the built environment. I love that you said that because it is both and it is important. It has to work, has to keep us safe, but it also needs to enhance quality of life. If someone would like to work with you, how can they find you? Certainly through our website, indigoriver.com, certainly through LinkedIn, just my name, Dina Prastos, I'm on Instagram, so there are various ways to, to get in touch and pretty responsive, especially when someone says they listen to an episode. I always love hearing feedback. It's always appreciated by our guests when the audience says, you know, this made a difference for me or hearing this. Sometimes we just need to know that someone else did it. And then we yeah. think, oh, that's that's possible for me. It opens yeah. that door. And that's an important part of sharing experiences as well. Yeah. And that's also, I would say, in terms of kind of important lessons learned and looking back, I felt maybe self-limited in a way that I couldn't see what I wanted to be. And it took me, not that it took me very long, I was still in my kind of early 30s when I launched Indigo River, but it took a, a different kind of approach to double down and commit to the risk that it was to form a firm in an arena that most architects don't practice with, you know, a team that is very different than the typical studio team. And so not to be intimidating that there's something you're passionate about, you, you can articulate the case for it, the business need for it, the the need within the built environment for it, that you can be what you can't see. And it's not something to shy away from. And so that maybe is, is even a bigger lesson that certainly empowering to be able to bet on yourself in a new arena as an architect, that agency that we're earned with our license is to protect the health, safety and welfare of the public in the built environment. So not to be self-limiting in what that can mean and how that practice can form. You really can do what you love. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important thing that can get lost in in the shuffle of just getting work done. Thank you for bringing that to light. And thank you so much for being on the show, Dina. Loved having this talk and hearing about your story and how you basically created a firm that empowers you to play to your strengths every day. Thank you for having me, Angela. It's been my pleasure. 
you for listening. You made it all the way to the end of the episode, which means you are committed to making yourself a priority so you can be empowered to do the work you were called to do in the world. How amazing is that? If you would like even more content just like this, please remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. I would so appreciate it if you left an honest review too. Hey, I want you to know I'm here for you beyond the boundaries of this podcast. You can follow me on social media at Architecting Podcast or visit architectingpodcast.com to download some great free resources. Take care, everyone, and stay inspired.